guys. Welcome to Striving Together, Conversations Worthy of the Gospel. I'm your host, Jacob Young. I'm the pastor of King's Cross Church here in Manchester, New Hampshire. We're a church plant with Sovereign Grace Churches. And the purpose of this podcast is really simple. I want my friends here at King's Cross Church to get to know our family of churches across Sovereign Grace Churches. And so what I figure I do is just have conversations with my friends in Sovereign Grace and introduce them to you, ask them questions about their life, ask them questions about their history with Sovereign Grace, get to know aspects of the ways in which they have influenced me and have conversations around those things so that they can have influence upon my friends here at King's Cross Church. The format of this podcast is really simple. Once a month, I'll put out an interview with one of these guys and hope you enjoy it. This month's interview is with Phil Sasser. Phil Sasser was the lead pastor of Sovereign Grace Church of Apex, North Carolina for a number of years from around 2001, 2015. Um, He was a pastor on staff prior to that there, and prior to becoming a pastor, Phil was a pharmacist. Now, you'll get to hear more about Phil's story of how he went from uh, becoming a Christian to being a pharmacist as a Christian and then becoming a pastor at the church in North Carolina. He also has served Sovereign Grace on the Polity Committee in helping us formulate and uh, define our Book of Church order. Um, And he also teaches at the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. He was one of my professors there uh, for our ethics class, and it was a phenomenal class with him. He was uh, a great influence upon me and many of the guys in the class. I'm really excited for you to get to know Phil. Some of the things uh, that we're going to discuss are going to be not only Phil himself, but because of his tenure with Sovereign Grace, we're going to get to know a lot of Sovereign Grace history. Um, Basically how it began as a bunch of people out of the Jesus movement uh, to where we are today. And kind of a heads up on one of the terms that we're going to use in the interview is this term apostolic. We talk about apostolic ministry and uh, people get a little nervous with that term because it's the question of like, well, are you saying that guys are apostles, like a capital A, and can write scripture. No, that's not what we actually mean by the term or what Sovereign Grace has ever meant by the term. Uh, the term is actually a bit more, um, it's a biblical term. You look at Ephesians 4, the ministry of apostles, um, and then throughout the New Testament, there's guys who get called to apostles who aren't a part of the original 12. Um, and the way we utilize that in Sovereign Grace over our history is effectively basically like a bishop uh, in terms of it's uh, church history terms, a guy who had uh, care and oversight of churches, basically a pastor of pastors, um, and we've grown in our understanding and application of that term, so we don't really use apostolic as a term anymore. We use a regional leader and apostolic um, ministry that's uh, divvied up and used within our book of church order and our church government right now. So it's just I just want to make sure that it's clarify that term in case that kind of throws you off. We um, have never had guys in Sovereign Grace who wrote Scripture or added to Scripture or even had the intention or thought that they added to Scripture. They were guys who were helping us uh, in our care for church pastors and care for churches and helped focus our mission in advancing and planting new churches within our small family of churches. So that's how we've used it. Um, Another one of the things that we're going to talk about with Phil is a functional commitment to God's Word. Phil is a man whose life is defined by a submission to and delight in God's Word. And so I'm excited for him to have uh, a voice in your life and how that's worked for him. Uh, We just got done preaching through the book of Exodus at King's Cross, and we preached two sermons on the Ten Commandments. Um, My class with Phil was basically... Uh, an ethics class devoted to um, 
working through each of the Ten Commandments. So we spent a lot of time talking about the Ten Commandments. He's going to talk a little bit about how the Ten Commandments apply to the Christian life. We'll talk about a few other things, and then he's going to have a word that he's going to share, just an encouragement for our church in these early days of church planting. Guys, I really hope you enjoy this interview. Now let's get straight to it. I'm good, Jacob. How are you? I'm doing well. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I'm using a headset here, so... Oh, excellent. Connection's good. Excellent. How's your day going? Going well. Went to the gym, worked out, so ready, ready to go. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I, was, I was a little late into the gym today. Uh, we just found out that our... Uh, seven month old has had a double ear infection, so we uh, we've not oh. been getting a lot of sleep this week. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, it's okay. I remember those days. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me, Phil. I really appreciate you doing this. It's uh, it's well, a, a real blessing for the church, and they really enjoy getting to to meet guys through these interviews. Good. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. I'm. I'm... Honored you'd have me. Yeah, I know. It's great. Well, if we could get started, I'd love to hear, um, and I've heard it from you before, but I'd love for folks to hear your story of how you became a Christian and how you became a pastor. I mean, if you were to introduce yourself basically to the church, how would you introduce yourself? Oh, well, um, how would I introduce myself? Um, <clears throat> I'm a sinner saved by grace. Um, we, we were... Um, I'm 68 years old. I've uh, been married to the same wonderful woman for almost 48 years. Wow. And we uh, we have uh, five children and uh, and 18 grandchildren. <laughs> wow. And uh, so it's been an exciting life so far. Um, neither my wife or myself were had much of a religious background or uh, or raised in church. And we um, she and I met in high school actually. And um, um, I was a senior and she was a junior. And we met in biology two class. And um, four years later, uh, we got married in 1969. And then I was a student at uh, Ohio State University. Um, I was in pharmacy school. Uh, My sister was a pharmacist and her older sister and her husband were pharmacists, so they encouraged me to do that and for us to get into business together, which we did. And um, so in 1972, I graduated from Ohio State. I, uh, yeah, I kind of left out part. You know, I was born actually in southeastern Kentucky, but lived um, a good bit of my childhood uh, life in southern Ohio. So and then Cassie and I met uh, in Athens, Ohio, where uh, where we lived. Um, after after. Uh, after college, after high state, um, we had bought our first drugstore in kind of north central Ohio, a little town called Mount Vernon, and we relocated our family there. And that next year, um, some things began to happen in our family's life, not my family, but my wife's family. And um, uh, they had begun, a number of them, a number, uh, two children and the parents, Cassie's parents became Christians. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so it was um, so under some influence. We actually, 
I went to visit them uh, in May of, of 1973, and uh, they invited us to a to a home Bible study. It was at that home Bible study that um, I didn't even have a Bible. I mean, I had a Bible at home somewhere probably I'd, I'd gotten in, in grade school. But um, we saw uh, a little boy prayed for and healed. Wow. And we saw, we saw, we experienced charismatic gifts, which we didn't know what that was. And um, so I left there that night uh, profoundly affected and drove the two and a half hours back to our home in, uh, in the North Central Ohio. And by the time I got home, I was, Jacob, I was aware of two things. Jesus was alive. And I was in big trouble. <laughs> those were my those were my takeaways. Yeah. yeah, he's alive and he shouldn't be messed with. Um. Uh, that's right. And I've yeah. ignored him my whole life, and that was uh, and I knew that was wasn't right. So wow, that began uh, quite an ex- uh, 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 quite a uh, experience in the, in the in the days and weeks and months that followed. Uh, we were we were radically saved. We were we we really went from from death to life. And, wow! Um, it impacted every area of our life, um, and uh, so uh, a number of years later, uh, a couple years after that, uh, myself and another fellow started a uh, a Bible study in our home, uh, which started with four couples and grew to about seventy people within a year. So how did you we, guys, we, how did you know those people? And then where did the 70 people come from? Like, did you be, go to, did you become a part of a church or did you get saved and just read your Bible? Well, actually there's, there's a, um, there was a group called the Full Gospel Businessmen, Full Gospel Businessmen Fellowship International. It was a group that started in the late 50s, actually, nationwide. And, um, and by the 1960s, 60s and early 70s, they were a significant uh, communicator of uh, of the uh, of the infilling of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. And I had run across them after I'd gotten saved. Uh, and uh, my friend who started the Bible study with me had started a local chapter in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Okay. And uh, so we would have these. We'd have a businessman come in. And he would give us testimony, and we would invite other people in our uh, and that we knew. And so we started doing that, and that little chapter grew. And then out of that, Full Gospel Businessmen is—they uh, were again—they were excellent communicators of of the uh, the doctrine of the of the Holy Spirit, at least according to their, which is classical Pentecostal in many ways. It was it was a subsequent experience uh, mm-hmm. to conversion, or it could it could happen at the same time, but it had some. Um, Things that that um, we might not entirely agree with, but they were they were actually a good group. And when we we have people come and get uh, and, be, and get saved, become converted, and it was those people that got converted that that instead of going back into either either they didn't have a church or was a church that um, perhaps was liberal. We were we had been going to a liberal, liberal Methodist church, uh, so <clears throat> a lot of the original people that those those four or five couples that met. Um, in September of 1975, were uh, people that had, that had who had gotten saved and 
uh, had had been filled with the Holy Spirit in a full gospel businessmen's meeting, and so then we kind of took took on the task of um, of t- instructing them in the Bible. So that's how it got started. Wow. And then people came. Not then people later came from our community, and from just contacts, and the people that came invited other people. So like I say, within a year we had um, we had seventy people uh, meeting on a regular basis. And were you like meeting in your house? Like where where are you fitting <laughs> seventy yeah. people? <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, Kathy and I had bought a um, an old Victorian home uh, built uh, at the turn of the century, built in 1901, and it had um, it had three large uh, downstairs rooms: a dining room, living room, and a sitting room, uh, all of which were quite large. And you could there was a spot you could you could you could stand in, and you could see out through all all three rooms could see you. So yeah, that's okay. How we did it. That's kind of like so, our a, our current house is very much like that. We're in an old Victorian, and you could stand in the one of the front rooms, and they all kind of open into each other. So yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 what it was like. And uh, and in the summer times, we would actually uh, my friend who helped who started that with me um, had a farm. We would sometimes meet out outside um, at at their farm farmhouse. But yeah, so that was exciting. And out of that, after a while, as it continued to grow. Uh, we actually, and some people from a from a small church of Christ um, uh, came, and they uh, um, and they received the Holy Spirit as well. And so we had then a, a kind of convergence of our group and this this Church of Christ going through massive changes. I don't know if you know much about Church of Christ. Yeah. The, yeah. So there's there's no, no, a lot Phil, of theological issues. There. Yeah, Phil. Our, but they our, were very. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, fill fill our folks in if if they don't know what Church of Christ is in terms of just kind of doctrinal differences, the basics. Yeah, well, Church of Christ would be very very much cessationist. That the spiritual gifts had passed away. They would be. Um, um, they came out of the, 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 a discipleship movement of the of the um, 1830s and 40s, and a couple of brothers, um, uh, the Campbell brothers and J. Barton Stone started this movement that emphasized uh, uh, baptism, uh, almost to the point of bab- baptismal regeneration. And they were very anti-credal. Um, and out of that came the Disciples of Christ, um, largely the Church of Christ, the Church of Christ and Christian Union, the Christian Church. These are all uh, flowing out of that. So we were, gotcha. uh, we, so that that's kind of who, who they were. <clears throat> and um, so when, we came together in the fall of 76 uh, and began to meet together. <clears throat> and in the fall of 77, in September of 77, I was ordained um, as a pastor, an elder. So that will be 40 years this, this fall. Wow. And, uh, this was in a sm- small town of 800 in, uh, in north central Ohio. Um, and our church ultimately grew to about 400 in excess of 400 by the um, by the mid 80s. Wow! And uh, so yeah, that was a that was an exciting time and uh, a lot of things. It was a real real. You were we were basically in inside of the the larger charismatic movement. Uh huh. So I, I'm, you know, I don't know if you, what you think of when you think of the charismatic movement, but. Um, the charismatic movement was taking place. That was a movement that emphasized, obviously, the spirit, spiritual gifts. 
and uh, and it um, uh, there's much to be said about that, and, and it, it does connect with uh, sovereign grace at some point. But on my just my personal history, uh, I, I became uh, kind of a bivocational elder in, in 1977. Uh, I continued on with, in business. We now had four businesses, um, and it was. Uh, uh, and by 1982, uh, I really felt we felt called that I should get out of uh, the drug business and uh, and and yeah and uh, be full time in ministry. Right. So in 1982, I I, uh, I sold the business to my family. My asked my part of it to my family. And I went. I went back. I went back to seminary uh, in the uh, in the spring of 1982. Where'd and, you go uh, to? Did, was this? Uh, you went to seminary? Or did you take distance classes? No, I went to to seminary. Um, I, I went to Ashland Theological Seminary, which is in Ashland, Ohio. It was okay. the closest evangelical seminary to us, and so there weren't a lot of evangelical seminaries around where we were. Um, uh, and so we went there. And it was a, I, I got a I got a fairly good education there. Uh, it, it's a it's historically brethren, um, uh, but they they were really broadly evangelical. So I had I had um, you know I had, uh, had more more reformed Calvinistic um, professors there, uh, and I, it was so it was a it was a it was a good experience. Yeah, I, my understanding me. is the brethren. Um... Kind of come out of the Wesleyan movement from uh, because I, I believe the United Brethren and the American Methodists merged in the 1930s to become the United Methodist Church. Um, so I don't know if that's yeah the the yeah the EUB Evangelical United Brethren that's that's correct they did the Brethren w- would be um, that's true the, the thing about Brethren churches they come out of more uh, of a Pietistic background. Mm-hmm. And and um, and so doctrine historically wasn't emphasized as much, but I wouldn't say that that was not true uh, in uh, in the seminary I went to. And and, and it, it was a good time for me because I was a charismatic, and in 1980 I became a Calvinist. Uh huh. Um, and I I had uh, my 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 uncle uh, my uncle was a retired Baptist pastor, and. Uh, uh, I went to my grandmother passed away, and when I went to, the, went to the funeral. He invited me to his library after the funeral, and I uh, said, "I'm going to sell all these books or do something with them. Do you, why don't you pick one?" And I said, "I didn't even know what to pick." So he he picked one for me. He picked a strong systematic theology, uh, and uh, which is one of the first systematic theologies uh, I, right. I, I I think the first. Wow, that was a, it was original uh, first edition from eight from uh, from eighteen. Uh, 81 i think so wow um and i began to read through that and uh, i also was uh, i was teaching uh, on a tuesday evening class on romans and um, that converged those little things converged and i began to to consider um came impacted by by the doctrines of grace and uh, and that was a huge change for me. So in 1980, I made this. I was a charismatic who was a Calvinist, and I didn't know anybody else like that. <laughs> it was, a, and it does a little bit of strain between myself and my my fellow elders. 
who are good men and, and they, they right. um, but they, they wouldn't have been from quite the same persuasion. But going to seminary actually helped to, to firm those things up as well. So, um, yeah, so that was my, 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 my history there. So how did you go then from from being nineteen? This is nineteen eighty, early early eighties or mid eighties. Um, mm-hmm. How did you go from that to being um, where you're at now, pastor, sovereign grace? In the right. South? So um, in in uh, in the I, I stayed at that church until nineteen eighty nine. Now in the early eighties, um, sovereign grace. In those days, they were called People of Destiny International. Planted uh, one of their first church plants was in Ohio. They planted a church in Cleveland, Ohio, and we knew who one of the the leaders in uh, PDI at that time, or so, I'll just call it Sovereign Grace now, even though the name went through a couple of iterations. Um, Larry Tomzak was a well-known uh, speaker in the Charismatic movement, conference speaker. And uh, he came, moved to the Cleveland area, where he's from, actually. And uh, he, uh, he he planted a church for Sovereign Grace there. And we went up and kind of connected with those guys at one point to see what they were doing. A couple of years later, in 1985, I was invited to their, pa- their pastor's conference uh, in, um, in Rockville, Maryland. And I attended one of their early uh, pastor's conferences. The, the pastor's conferences were so small, you could really meet in a, in a and a, not a small conference room, but really a conference room. And uh, so I had my, 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 my introduction to Sovereign Grace then, and I was, um, I really liked many things about them, uh, especially their commitment to Christian community in certain aspects. Um, and so when, so flash forward four years, my wife and I uh, decided that we would, we were going to leave Ohio and move to North Carolina and plan a church and um how did you get so that, I had, uh, how did that get on the radar of going to north carolina to plant a church well a couple of things uh i was working with a loose confederation of churches in in the midwest um and i had done uh, research and administration for a church plant in 1988 in suburban chicago and i had um uh <clears throat> I, I had gotten a, a bit of a, a bug to, to plant a church. Same time, my in-laws retired to Pinehurst, North Carolina, which is about an hour's drive south of here. And we started coming to visit them uh, starting about 1982 or three, and really felt uh, we liked North Carolina and felt like maybe God would have us to be there. We, we, we prayed about it. Um, <clears throat> The group I was with wanted me to research where they might plant a church in the South. And uh, so I went through a lot of, of church planning kind of uh, resource. I began to um, look at, at the South, where could someone from the North go to, from the North plant a church in the South? Well, you have to pick your spots, especially in, 19, in 1989. And uh, I, so I, I ended up with, with uh, 12 cities in five different states in the South. And I ranked them, and Raleigh, the Raleigh Durham, Raleigh area was what came up really high uh, in terms of growth, uh, receptivity from from someone who's not from the South. Um, so there are a number of things, like just from a pure analytics standpoint, that this really stood out to us. Wow. And so we uh, we prayed, we prayed, and we we um, we 
left our church where I'd been a pastor for 13 years wow. uh, in Ohio and came down here. Uh, we didn't, uh, it wasn't with a, it wasn't with sovereign grace, but I didn't start a church right away because my children were in high school and college. Uh, I needed to, um, I needed to get established. So I went back to um, uh, managing drugstores and uh, did that for, uh, for, uh, for uh, five years. But in 1991, we were getting the magazine that Sovereign Grace used to produce. They produced a monthly magazine, and um, we had could, we had gotten that for years, and really liked it. Stayed kind of up with the with who the, who they were and what they were doing. And they announced that they were going to plant a church in the Raleigh area, and so we were just getting ready to launch ourselves, uh, and we stopped what we were doing, and um, and uh, and contacted. Uh, the, the original church planter uh, in this area and met with him. Uh, so, and a significant thing had happened in Sovereign Grace. They had made a turn towards Reformed theology in 1990. And that really sealed it for me because, again, I was a charismatic. It was a, it was a Calvinist. Uh, and that's a, that was a tough fit in those days. Yeah. Um, and so, so uh, once Sovereign Grace had, had made that theological turn uh, in 1990 or 91, um, that really, uh, so we, the, the, so before the church, six months before the church was ever planted, we decided to, uh, we, our family got together, another family, we prayed, we fasted, the kids fasted, everyone fasted, and we sought the Lord as to whether or not we should we could join up with these folks, and we felt like we should, and so we did. And six months later, the church um, was started here, and so we've been a part of it. I was a, I was still working in the pharmacy. I became um, uh, uh, set in as an elder in, in 1994. Wow! And uh, became senior pastor in 2001. So. That's, wow. that's a brief history there. Yeah. A lot more details there, but that's, that's the overview. <laughs> that's excellent. And so I think what would be great, because uh, you're you're talking about the early years of Sovereign Grace, and then the, the 2001, I, it seems like, at least my experience of Sovereign Grace, there's a bit of a shift that happens there in the early 2000s. If you could just kind of, um, I think a lot of our folks, and even myself included, might be kind of ignorant of some of Sovereign Grace history. Can you kind of... Tell us a little bit about the bare bones of what Sovereign Grace history is, what you're familiar with, and what you'd like to talk about in terms of our history as a family of churches. Yes, well, Sovereign Grace uh, really came out of the charismatic movement. Um, the charismatic movement, you have to look at what the charismatic movement, I don't know how, how much you know about the charismatic movement, uh, but just briefly, um, if you think about the different, uh, we, we've we, we tend to talk about this in terms of waves, the different ways of of uh, kind of the Holy Spirit activity in America and in the, in the last century. Uh, in 1906, we have the Pentecostal movement being birthed uh, in primarily in Azusa Street, California, under the uh, preaching of a man by the name of Charles Seymour. And the churches that receive the Holy Spirit um, most readily, uh, the, the message of the of of the uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts were primarily holiness churches. And so they would be from the Wesleyan tradition 
Uh, they already have doctrine of the second work of grace, of sanctification, of entire sanctification. And so the, they really, uh, so the churches that really embraced the, the, the Pentecostal message were primarily holiness churches. Um, the, the, the second wave, which hits in 1964, is usually the date. That was the date, um, you think about an important date in uh, church history in America, uh, a man by the name of Dennis Bennett, who was a Episcopal priest in a um, St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, announced on Easter Sunday in 1964 that he had spoken in tongues. And so this was in Time magazine. It was in Newsweek. This wow, was a major it really? story. Oh, <laughs> could, yeah. you, could you it imagine was. that? <laughs> I, yeah, you're right. That's how big a deal it was. And, wow. And so, in the following in the in the following days and and months and years, um, a different set of churches began to receive the message of the, of the Holy Spirit, and it was primarily mainline churches. Wow. Okay. So we and were we were in a liberal Methodist church. And, was and he making the rounds and like? No, he he was he he wrote a book called Nine O'clock in the Morning, um, and um, uh, which told his 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 story, uh, and there's another book that he wrote as well. But there are other significant authors. David Duplissis, who was an editor with Guidepost Magazine, uh, wrote a significant book called They Then They Spoke with Other Tongues. Uh, there are other writers, uh, The Holy Spirit in You by Don by uh, Bob Mumford. Okay. Um, there were there were a group that that began to uh, to publish, and this revival, as it hits again, it hits mainline denominations. So when you went to a, a meeting, you would see people self-identify as we're Catholic Charismatics or we're Methodist Charismatics. Where uh, one of the major leaders was from the Reformed Church in New York, uh, Hal Bradison. So they it hit mainline denominations, and actually these people were just being saved too. Uh, a little bit unlike the Pentecostal revival, which really hit churches that were already had preached preach the gospel and had a strong conversion doctrine. Um, so that's what's happening. And it becomes, um, at first, people weren't leaving and starting new churches. Uh, they would come to, to other other meetings. So like I say, the full gospel businessmen really uh, captured a, a lot of that crowd and also communicated the message um, to others. Uh, a lot of conferences came came into place. So a lot of Jesus festivals, things like that. And in the in the D.C. area, there was a meeting that was called um, Take and Give or TAG, and it was started by a bunch of folks. Uh, early on, the leaders of Now Sovereign Grace became leaders in that. So uh, Larry Tomzak first, and then C.J. Mahaney, and and, and others. Um, uh, became a part of that. And so that went from, well, I suppose, around 1973, and it had its last meeting. It became a very significant meeting on the East Coast. Uh, and and it ended about in the late 70s sometimes. But in 1977, uh, these guys who were, uh, who were leaders in what's, what's now Sovereign Grace, and many, some of them have gone, of course, but it included Larry Tomzak, C.J. Mahaney, uh, che On in California was influenced by that. Uh, Lou Engel, 
uh, a number of <clears throat> of um, somewhat uh, uh, recognizable names, primarily through the through the conferences, the large conferences they spoke at, and these Jesus festivals and and uh, creation rallies. There were there were different names for them in different places. This was a phenomenon of the 1970s, and out, right. out of that. These, uh, Larry and CJ eventually became uh, discontent with that sort of um, ministry, and uh, uh, and so they started a church in 1977, Covenant Life Church. I think it started as called Gathering of Believers, but that quickly changed its name to, to Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, in 1977. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and out of that, uh, we. We came together. That uh, they came together and then began to plant churches. So I think '82 when they planted in Cleveland, Ohio, was one of the first. Um, um, one was planted in Virginia Beach. Bill Patton went from from uh, from Rockville. I, I think they were meeting in then or Gaithersburg up to uh, to Philly, Philadelphia area where where right. Covenant Fellowship was planted. So churches began along along the East Coast began to be planted by sovereign grace, and at first they didn't actually they they didn't adopt churches they only planted and they changed that later and when they began to take adoptions um, the, the movement grew quite large. Um, the movement was, again was well, some of the characteristics it was charismatic and, and unashamedly so, um, and um, they they also had a belief in present day apostles and prophets. They were influenced in this by a number of different other movements, or things that were taking place. Uh, the church I, we started in, in Ohio had nothing to do with, with them at all, and we started in 1976, and we had a belief in apostles because we went back to the Bible and felt that it was not warranted to say they had passed away. So this was kind of in, perhaps in the water, in the air, I should say. And uh, I think the early guys, CJ and Larry, were, were uh, affected by um, new frontiers um, mm-hmm. in in England. Yeah, there's actually a new and frontiers they, church near us here in uh, New, new Hampshire. Yes, yeah. yeah, so Terry Virgo became uh, in, really influential to them, and in, in the Stone Stonely Bible conferences uh, in Great Britain, and they would attend those. And so out of that, and there were, they had a, a guy actually in house who was publishing also about apostles and prophets was one of the original uh, founders of Covenant Life, and his name was Charles Schmidt. And so I read Charles Schmidt's writings in the late 70s. Uh, he was the one that I, I, not the only one I came in contact with, but one who I, I know had published. So there was that. There was Charismatics. There was Apostles and Prophets. And, uh, and so the, the church planting emphasis kind of came from that doctrinal, um, out of that doc, those doctrinal commitments. Uh, to, to kind of going back to the Book of Acts and how how were churches planted in the Book of Acts? Wow! And the and the movement, um, like I said, I was there in '85, and there might have been 20 churches in 1985. Um, by the time we, uh, by the time this the church here in Apex, North Carolina, got planted, well, it was actually started in Raleigh and Cary, and then we eventually moved to Apex, which is a suburb of of Raleigh down the road about eight miles, um, but there were there were quite a few, uh, there were there were a lot more uh, churches by by 1992 when I kind of re-entered 
uh, that, that life. And that's another significant thing had taken place. The uh, unquestioned leader of, of the apostolic team, they were called in those days, was Larry Tomzak. And um, uh, in late 80s, uh, early 90s, C.J. Mahaney became the primary leader of the apostolic team. And that was a significant, uh, and I'm not sure if it, it um, well, uh, that's, the, that's also the time that Sovereign Grace turned towards Reformed theology. Reform soteriology. Wow, and uh, and so that that's what happened. And so then, when I kind of reconnected after you know uh, eight year, well, we again continued to get get the the magazine. So we we kind of knew what was going on, and we're we're blessed by the by the teachings that they gave there. But uh, the turn towards Reformed theology really sealed it for us that this was we were home now. We'd, we'd found our people. You know, right. <laughs> we were, I suppose you'd say now continuation was to yeah. we believed in, um, in Reformed soteriology. So we were excited about to be there. Yeah. So then, so CJ became more of the, the leader of the apostolic team. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you're... You know, I don't know if people will be aware of this, but I believe you chair the head of our polity committee now. So how do we get from having an apostolic team to having a book of church order? Uh, that seems like a pretty... Uh-huh. <laughs> I know there's a lot of details that we could get into in terms of how that happened, but can you just kind of talk us through just a, you know, a brief overview? How do we go from having this apostolic team to having a, you know, a book of church order you can buy on Amazon now? Right. Well, um, <laughs> that's good. That's right. Um, a significant change t- takes place. Um, I think we, as the uh, the, the years of the, the 90s and the early uh, 2000s were a time of uh, some assimilation. Uh, for one thing, we were being, because of the, re- the turn towards Reformed theology, there were then other evangelical leaders that we began to associate with. And, um, and uh, so there were the, the Wayne Grudems, the, uh, the, the Mark Devers, um, uh, the, but John Piper, people like that we began to read and, uh, and associate with. Uh, and, um, and as that progressed, those relationships progressed, uh, we would have had we've shared a lot of things in common say with a with a with a reformed um, uh, baptistic reformed church like like a, uh, a reformed baptist church so like capitol hill baptist where mark dever is or or john piper at bethlehem baptist in, in minneapolis um and uh, and at least uh, john piper and wayne Grudem, of course would be open to spiritual gifts what none of them were probably open too much were apostles. That 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 uh, that, that began. So that doctrine began to be questioned. Uh, I didn't hear significant questioning of that until um, maybe 2008. So the movement continued to grow. Churches that we expanded were now attracting people who are historically not charismatics. Were more uh, what we call third wave. The first wave was 1906. Second wave was 1964. By the early 80s, the charismatic movement is, in, for all intents and purposes, over. But there is a new emphasis on the Holy Spirit uh, and gifts of the Spirit in particular 
uh, through other teachers. And uh, one of those would be John Wimber of the Vineyard. And he's generally the one credited with calling, uh, with, with talking about continuationism um, and gifts of the Spirit with a de-emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second experience and a de-emphasis of tongues in particular. And so we call that the third wave. And the third wave, because of the couple of those things being kind of de-emphasized, became more acceptable to evangelicals. So if the first wave, I hate to be giving a history lesson here, but uh, the, no, the first wave of the Holy, Holy Spirit in 1906 impacted holiness churches and those who believed in the second work of grace and sanct- entire sanctification. The second wave hit mainline denominations. And the third wave hit evangelical churches that were already preaching the gospel. Um, and so, uh, so th- with the third wave teaching um, being acceptable to to John Wimber, I mean, I'm sorry, not to, to Wayne Grudem, and he had many followers. Even D.A. Carson would could loosely be be lumped in there. Uh, certainly, Sam Storms um, uh, out in uh, now Oklahoma City, but then in Kansas City, um, and John Piper. Um, the gifts of the Spirit are, are, are acceptable. The, the Doctrine of the Apostles was not so much. And so I think there there began to be among certain leaders within Sovereign Grace a re a reconsideration or a questioning of should we use that type of terminology? Uh are there apostles beyond uh, the New Testament? And who were there were there apostles beyond the eyewitnesses of Jesus? So there are many debates taking place of whether or not Titus was actually an apostle or or Timothy's apostle. How do you translate or, you know, Second Thessalonians, the opening chapter there. So there's a number of or First Thessalonians, uh, but but in the end, by 2008 to 2010, apostles is being dropped. Instead of the apostolic team, it's now the leadership team. Instead of the the lead apostle, it's now the president. Um, and at a meeting, uh, in a in a pastors meeting, in um, in April of 2010. It was formally announced that we no longer, as a movement, believed in apostles. Now, this had profound effects on on our movement of churches because uh, when we believed in apostles, we believed in apostolic authority, and so the so that churches were not independent. That the the apostolic uh, leader actually had tremendous, uh, as in the New Testament. They were the ones charged with who may be ordained and who is removed, uh, and um, and what the doctrine was to be preached, what the acceptable practices were. Once that there was a failure, that, that person no longer was viewed with apostolic authority. Then what authority did he have? And, and, and almost immediately, we became a uh, sovereign grace ministries. Then became a pair of church structure, and churches essentially became independent with no authority. Mm. Outside of the local eldership, right, and that caused tremendous destabilization. Now, along with that, of course, there were internal strife among former leadership um, uh, team members. And so, in 2011, we went through a major crisis with with very public accusations of wrongdoing against right, by right. C.J. Mahaney, and so all of that transpired very destabilizing, tremendously destabilizing, and we had no means to deal with it. 
and so we brought in an outside group and ultimately there was a there was a trial ecclesiastical trial but <clears throat> but at that point we needed to have and everybody agreed we needed to, to relook at polity and determine what kind of a polity we were going to have were we going to be independent churches uh and or were we going to be um have more formal um uh, connections rather than just kind of association. So in 2012, uh, the then governing board of Sovereign Grace uh, commissioned a a polity committee, uh, and so I was the chairman of the polity committee along with eight other men. We labored uh, in 2012. We held kind of open uh, hearings for people to uh, present theological papers and positions on. On polity, and in the fall of 2012, we presented a a, a, um, a polity proposal that was basically a book of church order that we have now, and it's in kind of in its first form. Uh, that that was uh, presented in the fall of 2012, and um, and for the next six months there was uh, uh, there was there were not debates, but there was feedback. Uh, I traveled all across the United States, meeting with with regions and um, uh, and uh, getting feedback. Uh, we revised it, and it was formally adopted by the pastors in Sovereign Grace in um, April 2013. Wow. And so that that came about because of a vacuum, a polity vacuum that existed once apostles and apostolic authority were removed. It either had to be so it had to be replaced. Uh, it had to be redefined, and so we sought to go back and model it after what took place in the New Testament. Yeah. And uh, so that was our, that's what we did. And what I find fascinating what you're talking about is from the very beginning, um, and this would be helpful to know. Sovereign Grace was committed to church planting, which of course you know our church, King's Cross Church, is. Uh, uh, church plant, a contemporary church plant from Sovereign Grace, but it, it's been a value from the very beginning. And I, I know that it's a more popular thing to talk about these days, but where are you are you saying that, or correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you're indicating is that early Sovereign Grace was so committed to this, and it was a very radical and very different thing to be committed as a family of churches to church planting. Yes. Uh, I, there were people, I mean, there were moves planting churches. I'd been, again, with another small group in the Midwest that was uh, trying to plant churches as well. But uh, but Sovereign Grace did it um, uh, with a lot of thought. And um, uh, and they had, um, I just think they were more intentional and more committed to it. And their strong, that, that doctrine of apostolic authority really helped them in that. So you weren't just uh, supporting some local guy and uh, and giving him money to do whatever he wants kind of thing, but it really was coming with, uh, uh, with we're going to plant a church and it's going to look like this. Uh, we've we've kind of got a model that we want to export. And so there was a real intentionality about that. I In 1982, when I went up to, to visit uh, Steve Swank, uh, Steve Shank, I'm sorry, in, uh, in Cleveland, um, he was on the apostolic team, and he was there with Larry Tomzak planning North Coast uh, Christian community. Uh, and I, um, I got their foundations uh, book, which is kind of their, their, uh, their combination: new members, uh, 
but how we how we do church. And uh, so they had a real there was an intentionality to them uh, and a real commitment to excellence that uh, that went down um, very detailed. I'll say that. And so I think that was helpful. Uh, it made them successful in that. Yeah. And you're right. There weren't a lot. There wasn't a lot of that uh, going on. I mean, um, because you know, well, I, there was church planning going on, I suppose, by Baptists and others. Um, but uh, I, I think, I think it really was ahead of um, what we're seeing now. You have to remember that in the '80s, also, there's a church planting, church growth movement taking place. Mm. Church growth movement, which was centered primarily in Fuller Theological Seminary in California, and C. Peter Wagner, uh, and and so there was a, there was this church planting. I actually went to a conference in 1986 on church planting uh, in uh, uh, in Pasadena, and uh, heard uh, a number of speakers there. So there was a church planting movement. Uh, Kind of taking place uh, kind of inside the charismatic movement. Well, I shouldn't even say charismatic movement. But I heard people like uh, uh, what's his name from Saddleback, uh, Rick Warren. Right. Um, I, I was exposed to, to people like that, which I, I found their vision uh, interesting, but not particularly alluring. Uh, but there were others who were who were a little bit more um, uh, not seeker friendly. I'll say that. So. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, that's really helpful just to kind of give a full picture. And I think it's helpful to consider that from the early days, Sovereign Grace's structure and commitments resulted in um, mission efforts of church planting um, as led by the Holy Spirit and with intentional care, which I think is, I mean, that's what I experience as a church planter today, intentional care. Um and Holy Spirit leading for what we're doing next as a church plant, um, which I, I'm really grateful that we have a heritage uh, in our family of churches that is committed to that. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your in talking about your conversion is that uh, it, it radically reshaped your view of life, and I think you were saying that you guys suddenly were, you know, radically applying the Bible. And one of the things that I've really appreciated about our friendship is that I've seen how you are uh, functionally committed to the authority of God's word, functionally submitted to God's word. I, I'd love just to hear you talk about that topic for us. What does it mean for you to be functionally submitted to the word of God? Yeah, um, that's a great question, Jacob. When I was when I got saved uh, in May of 1973. Um, uh, a couple of things. I don't know if I said this earlier, but I just had a. Uh, it was a gift from God. It was a, a hunger for God's word. I actually read the New Testament through seventeen times in thirty days. <laughs> Holy cow! In May of nineteen, yeah, in May of nineteen seventy-three, I would stay up half the night reading the Bible, and I was reading the Old Testament too, trying to get my head around it. But because I had lived 24 years and ignored God, and it's like I'd missed the most important thing in the world. And that left me with a profound self-suspicion that I couldn't be trusted. <laughs> it's wow. hard for me to yeah. communicate that exactly. But I just, and so 
in those days, it was just, it really was back to the Bible. It was like, and I remember reading it. And at one point, I remember just at a personal level when I, when I realized how, what all the areas that the, the Word of God, particularly the New Testament, the Word of God spoke to in my life. I remember one time just, just stopping and just saying to the Lord, you want every, you want everything? Yeah. You know, it was like no area of my life in which, which it wasn't, he was speaking to. And I realized I had to, I had to learn how to live life all over again. And uh, that was a real event. My, the Lord just like in my heart just said, yes, and you'll never regret it. Wow. Uh, and, and so we, we were kind of, you know, we were naive perhaps. And when we started the church, we just went back and read the New Testament and tried to start a church according to the New Testament. But so much of my, my, my reflexes were shaped in those early years of, unless that's in the Bible, um, uh, I, you know, I can't be trusted sort wow. of thing. Yeah. And again, that's in my, I know I'm limited my interpretation of the Bible. There's a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of places to, to get off track there. But uh, the, that fundamental reflex uh, that that the Bible is authoritative in my personal life, my family's life, and my church's life um, is uh, is a commitment. I think we we all have to make, and I I think it's you know where we we don't trust in the, our own personal wisdom. But uh, God, God, Adam in his perfection in the garden still needed God to help him interpret life. So we are confronted with so many facts and so many observations we make, but our, it's our interpretation that needs to, that we need God's perspective. That's why going back to the Bible continually alters my pers- perspective. When I don't read my Bible, my problems get massive and very, and anxiety builds. But when I go to the word of God, uh, clarity comes and, uh, and again, it comes from a conviction of, of the truth that um, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And uh, we need, I uh, think, for every Christian, it's the embracing of that and really committing our, ourselves to it. So I don't know that, um, and I, I say it affects, you know, it affects my thinking, it affects my conversation, it affects my actions, hopefully more and more. It's like... I'm not saying because I think that, that I suddenly am doing all the right things, but I know that I know where the right things are found and they're not found in my head. They're actually found in the word of God. Yeah. So that, that, that profound sense of, uh, I missed the most important thing until, you know, until May of 1973, mm. just stayed, stayed with me my whole life. Wow. Yeah, how do you? Not, I remember. I'm, go ahead. No, no, go finish your thought. I love that. Well, for me, like it's like like Mark four gives the parable of the sower, and 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 in that parable, um, you know, Jesus tells the parable and he gives the explanation of the parable, and then he has this this kind of um, these kind of words at the end. Let me read them to you. After he tells the parable, he says, he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, or is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. I remember reading that in the summer of 1975. In those days, it was my habit to go through the Gospels in the summer and outline them and study them. And I remember in 1975 coming across that and this whole thing about having ears to hear. And it dawned on me when he, he, he said, he said, anyone has ears to hear, pay attention to what you hear. To the measure you measure, you use, it'll be measured to you and more will be given, added to you. For the one who has, I said, the one who, more will be given. The one who has not, even when he has, be taken away. I thought, what's that mean? Does that mean the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? But I think <laughs> right. if you look at contextually, it says, he who has ears to hear shall more be given. And he who does not have ears to hear, ears to hear, even when he has, will be taken away. And I realized that so much of what my life was going to be about was going to be determined by how I hear the word of God. And, and then and then Jesus has just given a parable about different ways that people hear the word of God. And and so that uh, that happened, you know, very very similar very early on in my life too, that understanding I think I have right from from Mark chapter four. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's um how we hear the word of God and so just a functional devotion to I'm going to suspect if I can't root this thought in the Word of God as submitting to it, I'm going to be suspicious of my own thinking. Um, That's right. And here, in the, in the when he says here, he means here in the Hebrew sense to hear and to obey. Yeah. Not just to give. Yeah, to hear and to obey. And you know, I said, tell my kids that they were they didn't do what I said. They said you're not hearing me. Yeah. You need to hear me on this. That means you need to. Here and obey, and I and so that was all. Yeah, that I'm shared that with you. I didn't plan to share Mark four, but it it was a it was what was happening in early in my Christian life, and I'm very thankful for God for helping me there. Yeah, was well, I was recently seeing, uh, just being reminded in terms of even just in terms of our preaching, that the meaning of the text is its application, right? I mean, there's obviously there's mm-hmm. a meaning and truth, but it it must apply to our lives and how we functionally live under God's word, Um, that it can't just be, oh, that's good truth, or it's not just like correct information transfer, but it's actually life transformation, submission to God's word. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Whenever I, my prayer at the beginning of the sermon is, Lord, change us Mm. by this word and the spirit. So you you get people to, and, and, and I think you're right. Um, well, I have two thoughts. One is you want people, you want to encourage people to hear the word of God that way. Hear it with a view to this should change me. It should change my thinking. It should change my actions. It should change my speech. It should change me in some way. And if I don't, if I don't read it that way or hear it that way, I'm, I'm missing something. And we become, I, we, we become those who hear the word but don't do it. Kind of that. Um, from James talks about that. Yeah. 
and I think your your thought too that that uh, if it's in, if it's in the Word of God, um, it's important for us as as pastors and preachers to establish it as that that we look to the Word of God to be authoritative. It's not true because I say it's true. Yeah. And so that I begin every sermon with turning your Bibles to right. Um, and I, I and because I, I want people to say that this this is where it's coming from. What you believe should come from the Bible, not from me. If you don't do that, and you just become one of these pastors who tells clever stories and has you know you know humor and uh, and people and and you kind of do business on that instead of on the text, you create a gullibility in your people. Mm. And somebody's going to come along if it's based on how slick you say it. Then somebody who's going to come along later who says it even slicker than you, and you're setting them up. So we don't want to build gullibility in our people. We want them to say that we it's true because it says it in God's word. Yeah, and that's and that's 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 enough. Yeah, and how do you? How can we, in terms of our functional submission to God's word? So you're talking about this, you know, profound self-suspicion. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I was even having it, like, in my head this morning, I was having a conversation about some biblical topic or whatever, and there's a way to ask, well, where is that in the Bible that's kind of, like, snooty, you know, or, like, oh, where's that in the Bible? Or there's a, a genuine submission to, like, well, I want that, to, I, I want to submit to God's Word, and so show me where that's in the Bible. Um, how, how can we kind of walk... Uh, faithfully in submission to God's word and being self-suspicious without becoming contentious about that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yes, it does. I, I think at a personal level, um, you're doing, you're just asking, what does the Bible say about that? That's the first question we ask. That's, that's, that's a question we ask about every issue. What does the Bible say about that? And we're not, we're not, uh, and as we do it ourselves, and as we 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 publicly uh, demonstrate those that we as pastors, as we we lead and careful, we sh- we show them that that that's the way way to do that. And um, uh, I don't think it'll become contentious. I think in a very non-contentious way, you can say, "I wonder what the scripture has to say about that. Where should we look? Where does it?" You know. That, so I think you can instead of somebody saying something and you coming at them and saying. The Bible doesn't say that, or, or where does it say that? It's more of a a collective. What all of us? What does the Bible say? Where would we go to establish um, uh, our our position on this? Whether it's whatever it is, you know, um, it can be how we how we act or do things in church, or it can be um, geopolitical issues as well. What would the Word of God say about this? So that yeah. people. People reflexively want to know that realize that the answer, the first question they need to ask uh, in order to get the right answer is, "What does the Bible say about this?" Right, and then how should I respond or live in light of that? As yes. as it's true. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Phil, do you have time for for one more question, or do you need to go? No, I'm good. So we are we're in the we're preaching through the Book of Exodus and. Um, Actually, this weekend we're going to be talking about. I'm going to be preaching on the Ten Commandments. We're going to do it in two sermons, and um, when I, whenever I get to the the Ten Commandments, um, I know this can become a bit of how do I, how do we apply the Old Testament to the New Testament? And one of the things I really loved about my experience at the Pastors College was 
for our ethics class, you taught us and you taught us through how do we um, think about biblical ethics and we talked about the Ten Commandments as basically the structure for our class. Um, how, can, you, can you help our folks or help us as a church think through, okay, we look at the Ten Commandments, they're in the Old Testament, we're in Jesus, we're in the New Covenant. How do we, I, I, without getting into all the theological details of the covenants and how we understand all that stuff, how do we look at the Ten Commandments and apply those to our lives? Well, um, without getting into to all the theology that could all that could be said about that, we have to say that all, that all of the issues that are in the Ten Commandments are restated, um, except for the Fourth Commandment, perhaps, uh, in the New Testament. And so all of these, you know, the the, the the Ten Commandments. And yeah, how did the how did the apostles view? The Ten Commandments. Well, I think they viewed them as authoritative. We see that in James. We see that in Romans 15. Um, um, and uh, so I think the, the, the Word of God, uh, the New Testament itself, itself uh, shows that the the, uh, the Ten Commandments are still relative, and that they're still uh, not just relative, but they're still authoritative in our lives. And um, now the Fourth Commandment, um, you could perhaps have some some uh, uh, exceptions there. But I would say this, even the, I mean, the, the fourth commandment uh, on the Sabbath uh, is, um, it, it's both, uh, it's, the Sabbath observation is a creation ordinance in some sense that predates Moses. Uh, Moses also states that it was not just to, to remember the Lord as a, a day of blessing, uh, this is also it is a picture of of your redemption, and so in the New Testament we see that um, that very quickly the church, uh, because of the resurrection, went from a Sabbath to the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and that they assembled together, uh, and that there was it was a time of uh, of uh, of um, uh, of, of meeting together, rejoicing, of uh, of uh, uh, observing. Uh, so, so were there changes in it? I think you could establish there were changes. Jesus said, "I'm the Lord of the Sabbath," and so we have um, much where there's Romans 14 that we could uh, that could could be spoken there. But I, I even think the fourth commandment has a relevance to us if we if we uh, look at it that the, that the New Testament church observed the Lord's Day. On the first day of the week, but the rest of the commandments are given uh, in their bare bones in Exodus 20, but but they are um, uh, fleshed out throughout the pages of the Old Testament, uh, and they are, are repeated again in the New Testament, and uh, each of them is kind of a summary statement of a of a particular topic. Uh, so whether it's um, uh, you, you pick one the uh, thou shalt not kill um, is still applicable to us today. God has said that. And then you look at the New Testament, it builds on that. It, it, so that Jesus says um, it, it's not just killing, it's the anger in your heart. Um, and so all of those, all of the, the commandments, again, are repeated in, in the New Testament, except for, for four, and even it's dealt with, I believe. But 
so the New Testament builds on the fact that these are authoritative. And then through the writings of the New Testament and even of the Old Testament, there's expansion of those. So it's very practical. So if one were to read a historical document like the, the Westminster, um, the greater, the, the, uh, the larger catechism, uh, of, mm-hmm. not the shorter catechism, the larger one, have beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, kind of unpacking of the Ten Commandments yeah. and the implications of the Ten Commandments. And so those are helpful to us. Um, all they've taken there, taken the thought, and then added a lot of scripture. And so I think when, when I've taught the Ten Commandments here, one looks, looks at something like the, the Third Commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain and just about, about cursing or about speech. Um, there's so much relevant. Uh, it's, it's so relevant to us today and how we speak um, of the Lord and how the words we use, the euphemisms we have for cursing. Um, uh, so the, I, think, I think there's so much that's, that's so relevant to us. And even the, in the first commandment, the second commandment, dealing with, um, with idols, we say, is that relevant to us today? But when we consider um, the, the idols of the heart kind of um, notion that, that we can make a God out of anything. Uh, so again, I think there's there's you're, it's, there's so much to commend there that you do it in two two sermons is commendable. I, that would be hard to do. <laughs> well, it's mostly because I am uh, this is all my freshman album as a preacher, and so I'm trying okay. to you know keep it reasonable and not give myself too much room to just go nuts and preach on the Ten Commandments for the whole year. You know, so yeah, that's right. <laughs> No, that's excellent. Yeah, and I think some of the, as in my personal studying and reading, I, some of the best of the Puritan literatures, almost all of them have, you know, a book on the Ten Commandments, expositing the Ten Commandments. Um, yeah. And I think that as I've begun to dig more deeply into them, um, seeing that this is God's design for us to thrive in our, in who He is, knowing Jesus and knowing. Uh, knowing our triune God, but then also uh, reflecting His grace um, in our lives with other people. Um, so that it becomes less of a punditry about should we have the Ten Commandments on the state building or not. Yeah. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is an excellent book I'm reading now um, that you might find helpful is uh, Sinclair Ferguson's Devoted to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an excellent work. And, he he really talks about uh, many of these issues. He's got a, he's got a uh, yeah. So I won't say any more than that. But. Oh no, that's excellent. I think it's that like his book, The Whole Christ, last year was so helpful, and I think that's kind yes. of like the follow up to that. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, and the yeah, and the whole Christ, the the moral controversy, and um, yeah, excellent work. That's excellent. Well, I I don't want to keep more of your time, but I. I and just for our last question, if you could say one thing to our church in these early days of a ch- as our church plant, I mean, you were you're talking about being a part of two church plants in the in your history. Yeah. Um, what would you say to our folks as we're kind of just getting off the ground? Well, uh, I would just um, I just commend you. Uh, I mean, church plant is hard to do. It's a small group of people trying to do a lot of different things, and there's um, um, so don't go weary in well doing. Um, I think those are those are important lessons. Uh, I think when we planted the church down here, 
uh, we had come from different churches, some really good churches. And we were here, and after a while, we didn't know each other, so it took a while for relationships to really be formed. Um, it was it was tiring work, you know, the first year. And the second year, uh, you're still relatively small. Those first 50 people are the hardest, and the first, you know, so it's, it's adding each family becomes um, uh, <clears throat> is a real milestone. So I would just I would just say just take care of each other. Um, and, uh, uh, and and encourage one another. Um, use this time. Or can do something unique in a small church plan, and that you can be um, close relationally. So, First um, so Corinthians thirteen becomes really important to you is that you really love one another well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the desire for expansion has to be. We're all about expansion for the gospel's sake, but. First of all, we're, we're together for the worship of God and, and, and encourage one another. And so uh, I would just encourage them um, not to grow weary in well doing. Love each other well and guard your unity. Um, a small group can, can do much if, they, uh, if they're unified. So I think uh, guard the unity of the spirit. Mm. So it's a gift to you. Yeah. And um, yeah. So those are the things I would encourage that's, you with. That's you're, on, you're on a real adventure. Yeah. Well, it's been a it's been a real uh, adventure so far, and I'm thinking about those categories that you're raising. Um, we're we're actually going to be preaching on First Corinthians 13 uh, this summer, and um, I it's a part of what we experience already, and it's a it's encouraging to hear what you're saying and think, ah, by the Spirit, God's doing that already, and so it's just fanning the flame what He's already doing. So that's great, Phil. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time to talk today. This is uh, uh, a real joy, and it's going to be a great to be able to share my friendship with you with the church. Um, you've just had such a, an incredible, uh, stabilizing impact on my uh, life in Sovereign Grace and my growth as a Christian and uh, my, I, I want to be like a pastor like you someday. So that'd be great uh, just to have for you to stick around a little bit longer, influence me, and uh, help us grow together in Jesus. So thank you time, for your time today, Phil. Uh, thank you, Jacob. It, uh, it was a real joy to be with you. Well, I hope you have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye now. Thanks. Bye. episode of Striving Together, Conversations Worthy of the Gospel. If you'd like to learn more about King's Cross Church, you can visit us at kingscross.church or kingscrossmanchester.com. They both go to the same place. There you can hear our latest sermons, uh, find out more about where we meet and our life together as a church. Music for this podcast is done by one of our worship leaders, Matt Litzinger. You can hear more of Matt's music, download his latest EP, or get his latest song that he wrote for his baby daughter, Piper, called Piper Song, at mattlitzingermusic.com. Matt Litzinger is the feel of fresh, warm grass under your feet on the first hot day of summer. Thanks for listening to this episode. Enjoy your week. Talk to you next time.